Climate Change Conference began in Glasgow on October 31st. At this important two-week conference, world leaders debate on ways the world can unite together to fight one of the most pressing issues of our time, climate change. Just one of the many challenges the conference discusses is CO2 emissions. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change recommends that global CO2 emissions should decrease by 50 to 80 percent by 2050. How can economies that depend on fossil fuel exports and the oil and gas industry meet this challenge? What solutions are out there? Good morning and thanks for coming. I'm Liz Brailsford, President and CEO of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. We're thrilled to welcome Texas A&M University at Cutters, Dr. Dabia Al-Mohanadi, who is here to speak on the answers to these CO2 emissions problems. As we continue to safely operate programs in person, we'll be taking every step within our capacity to protect our community. For the most up-to-date on our health and safety practices and to view a complete event lineup, please visit our website at dfwworld.org. Dr. Dabia Al-Mohanadi is a, an assistant professor of chemical engineering at Texas A&M University at Qatar. She began teaching there in 2018 and is the first female uh, Qatari graduate of Texas A&M at Qatar to return to the university as a faculty member. She earned her master's degree from the Branch campus and a PhD from Texas A&M's main campus, all in chemical engineering. The goal of her work is to reduce the carbon footprint in gas production and processing and to have more return on investment while reducing that carbon footprint. She is the recipient of many awards and honors in her field, and she states, I want to create the most impact I can and start producing good engineers and by creating new knowledge, I hopefully can give back to the country which has invested in me so much. I don't want to have just local impact, but international, that's the ultimate goal. And I think that's a fabulous goal. We are honored to have her with us today. And Dabia, I look forward to a fascinating presentation. And with that, I will hand it over to you. Thanks again to everyone for joining us and we'll see you on the flip side. Thank you so much, Liz, for hosting me and for the wonderful introduction. Um, yeah, we hope to create impact by hopefully uh, reducing our global emission. And um, today as a chemical engineer, I'll be talking to all of you. So I'm really happy that I get the chance to talk to you and to get some feedback as well. And uh, so we can brainstorm together on finding the best way to reduce our emissions. Um, I'm really happy to see some questions already in the chat, but I'll start sharing my screen and uh, just let me know if you have any questions later. <laughs> Um, so, Texas a and I could love to sort the background on uh, the campus. It was established in 2003. It's a branch campus from Texas a University in uh, College Station, Texas. Um, so we're a branch campus. Uh, the campus only has uh, four engineering majors, which are the chemical engineering major, mechanical engineering, petroleum engineering, and electrical engineering, along with liberal arts 
department that support the programs and uh, science. It is set in a very unique place in Qatar, uh, which has a lot of satellite campuses from the US in Doha, in the place we call Education City. So it has some uh, campuses like the Foreign Policy School from Georgetown, the Communication and Journalism School from Northwestern, uh, the Medical School from Cornell, uh, the Art School from Virginia uh, University. And um, there's also CMU, which uh, teaches computer science. So um, we have this unique setup, and we have a lot of uh, cooperation between the US and Qatar in terms of education that resulted in a lot of graduates who are working right now in all fields in Qatar and globally. Um, just to give you a little background on Qatar, I know you're, you're all familiar with it. So it's just a small country in the Middle East, just a dot over here. And we're surrounded by water from three different places. And our official language is Arabic, but English is widely spoken. And it's a desert climate. We have only 2.8 million people. Uh, that's everybody who's living uh, in the country. Uh, Qatar is in a place where you'd say um, it's like a dry land or extreme arid land. Um, it is a place where you have uh, zero fresh water, almost zero fresh water, with the exception of groundwater access. The um, temperature is uh, mostly um, uh, in the mid, like say in Celsius, like uh, 30s and 40 Celsius. So that's um, like around the low, the, the higher end of the temperature uh, that you would consider in the summer but we have it all year round. Uh, we have very low rainfall, and um, there is um, also around 40% of the world that lives in this condition. And that's the region that we see over here in gray. Um, due to climate change, more places around the world are gonna become arid. So they will have similar climate to Qatar if we don't know anything about it. And um, the hope is to stop this from happening and uh, to also see how we can um, work together in terms of Changing, exchanging lessons from the arid regions to other regions around the world. Uh, before the discovery of oil, Qatar in 1947, just around that discovery, it only had 16 people, 16,000 people living in it. That's a total population. Uh, it mostly lived on uh, fishing and pearl diving. And uh, around that time, there was like uh, the education was minimal, just the Quran schools, and um, their, the medium age was very uh, low. So um, there was like a spread of diseases, low education, and no access for water. Along with the discovery of oil and the boom after here, uh, the population in 2020. Uh, you can see a fully developed urban uh, country with uh, here the image of Doha. And it has around uh, 2.8 million people living in it. 95% uh, of the population lives in the capital, Doha, and uh, it's uh, always expanding. So, uh, ever since I, like, I grew up with construction, so I don't know how big the city will get, but it's always growing and you always see new projects. Um, obviously, that was made possible because of the discovery of oil and also the discovery of gas that made everything livelihood possible in Qatar. Um, because of the low rainfall, we don't have any fresh water resources with the exception of groundwater and we rely heavily on desalination of seawater for, uh, for uh, clean water access. Um, there's also a heavy industrial activity and petrochemical activity that consumes a lot also from water and sadly just because of the large heavy activity and the low population we have one of the largest water consumption per person per day in the world. Um, it's a hydrocarbon based economy 
the LNG export uh, is reaching everywhere in the world. We have the largest LNG company, which is liquefied natural gas, uh, that exports to Japan, South Korea, China, India. Uh, there's also some that goes into uh, Europe and neighboring countries. And this enabled the wealth of the nation and um, the campuses like Texas campus that I'm studying and teaching at right now. And um, also it fed into the Qatar uh, Investment uh, Authority that has a lot of investments around the world. So it goes from hydrocarbon that actually created the livelihood in the country itself um, and uh, generated the wealth. However, Qatar is um, at very large risk of uh, climate change effect. Uh, the total emission contribution is less than 1% of the total world emissions, just because it's a very small country, less than 1%. If we go all zero, all the 1% will change. Uh, however, we're at a very high uh, risk of uh, sea level rises. Um, this is because the population lives along the coastline and uh, with um, a high probability of sea level rises. So even the industrial activity and the res residential activity and the oil and gas and the power and the water all sits across the uh, coastal region. Uh, so there is a huge risk of um, uh, interruption to all of these activities. So Qatar has um, recognized this. So we're in a very unique situation where we rely heavily on hydrocarbons. Yes, we do export the cleanest hydrocarbon possible, but it still has an emission. At the same time, we're at a very high risk of climate change impacts. Uh, so the nation has taken some uh, unique leadership in this area. They, uh, in COP26, uh, just before that, we, we announced the 25% emission by 2030 uh, reduction of emissions um, in, the, uh, in the country. Um, there's also uh, been a change in the uh, country itself, changing the oil dependency and the gas dependency to establishing the oil national company to change the name to Qatar Energy instead of uh, oil or gas. There is also mandates to phase out flaring of methane. Uh, there is also some uh, initiatives to enhance circular economy, uh, waste recycling, water efficiency, and uh, there is a huge shift towards promoting public transportation locally and electromobility. And also Qatar has invested in, um, in with um, its uh, um, foreign ministry in to help small island nations to combat climate change because also they are um they're like they're that um they have a high probability of also uh, experiencing the impacts of climate change there's also some uh, partnerships like the hydrogen alliance uh there's also some partnerships with south korea and the uk and recently qatar foundation also has partnered up with rolls royce to fund um startup in the climate region focused to convert a carbon dioxide and um, the uh, other solutions, including adaptation. So they, we need to reduce our emissions and we all agree on that. Um, so there has been a lot of commitments over in the past 50 years, but somehow the emission kept rising. Um, with no policy changes, the emission is gonna increase. Um, their current commitments, uh, the emission is increasing. We're gonna have some increase in the temperature but we're no close towards the recommended path, which requires more commitment from more countries, especially the big emitters. Um, 
But recently, there has been some positive uh, plans that have been coming uh, in the news. So in climate change in the US, Biden has um, come up with a, a climate uh, policy that was uh, very ambitious. Same thing in the UK, by 2035, they will aim to go towards uh, reducing their CO2 and phasing out completely of coal. And right now in COP26, where the negotiations are still happening, um, there has been a uh, statement to phase out coals uh, as much as possible in the next um, in the next 10 years. So by 2030, they try to phase out coal in major economies and 2040 everywhere else in the world. Um, the sad part is the biggest users of coal has not, uh, till today, they didn't sign this uh, agreement. So China, India, the US, and Australia, um, they uh, still need to do some effort in terms of uh, committing to that target. Um, and uh, China specifically um, said uh, uh, some statements like they didn't reach their carbon emission peak yet, and they will reach that by 2030. Um, fossil fuels, as you know, we use them in power and heating, and we also use them in transportation, whether that was in um, uh, urban transportation or in um, shipping or in um, freight or uh, in flights as well. However, fossil fuels also are a raw material for a lot of the products that we use in our daily lives. Um, that's natural gas, oil, and coal. They end up in products and these products are integrated in our daily lives. Um, all these products are a result of an industrial activity. So there's an industrial chemical process that not just emits CO2 as part of the heat and power requirement for the process itself, but also as a byproduct of converting natural gas into products or oil into products and maybe converting any carbon to products. So to reduce those emissions, we either need to avoid reducing that by using renewable energy as much as possible, so we avoid the creating of CO2, but also we need to have some um, processes to eliminate the process-related CO2 emissions. And this could be either carbon capture and storage or carbon capture and utilization and the conversion of carbon dioxide into value-added products. And as of now, there is many routes to convert carbon dioxide to value added products. We can all make chemicals out of carbon dioxide, and that would be a carbon negative technology that actually takes a very problematic molecule and makes something useful out of it. Uh, we can uh, trap carbon dioxide into building materials, making cement out of it, concrete. Um, also, it can go back into making fuels, but fuels that are originating from CO2 and that will also generate CO2, but we'll have to come up with a clear mechanism to do that. CO2 can be also used in industry as a solvent. It can go into a, in an endless loop, so it means it doesn't have that much emission. And it also can be used as a heat transfer fluid and also can be used in uh, other applications like medical uses in welding and steel and so on. Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher, at leeb at dbu.edu. 
So there were some studies that looked into what is the cost of climate actions. There was a Morgan Stanley study in 2019 that estimated the cost of around $50 trillion. Uh, this would have to be um, divided between renewables, electrical vehicles, carbon capture and storage, hydrogen production, and biofuels. And in COP26, uh, finance firms have joined the net zero pledge and, uh, pledge, and they actually said uh, the money is there, but we need the mechanism. So is it actually $40 million tr uh, trillion dollars in uh, renewables? or is it in uh, electrical vehicles? Okay, then how are we supposed to do that? Um, the reality is the cost would vary between countries. It's not gonna be the same for all countries. It would depend heavily on the emission profile, on the electricity and power requirement and the population and the, um, uh, it, the type of industry that exists in that country. So as you can see here, there is difference in emission in the world here and the largest contributors, you can see it's like the developing, the developed countries like um, in the European Union, the United States, China, and then India is coming. And uh, you can see here the different types of industries that are contributing to those emissions. So there's transport sector, there's also the uh, electricity and heat sector, the manufacturing construction and so on. Um, this is also another graph that shows you that how the cost would uh, vary between um, for different energy production. And uh, you can see here, in, uh, for example, Norway has a very uh, uh, renewable friendly uh, grid that can be integrated and can produce electricity at a cheap price, whereas uh, other countries would have to have a more expensive way of dealing with that. So it seems like it's not gonna be one solution. It's not gonna be one cost. It would depend highly on the emission profile and to identify also the possibility of the best reduction schemes. In Qatar here, we have a significant industrial sector that contributes a lot to the emission. So you can see here from the emission profile, only 7% come from transport, 18% uh, comes from electricity and water consumption. And sorry about that. And then you have here 67% that comes from industry. Whereas we can see here in the US emissions, you have a larger set, the larger of the um, segment of the emission profile is coming from the transportation and then the electricity and to a lesser extent, the industry, but also agriculture would be a big part of also producing that, uh, that uh, emission. Whereas that wasn't existing in other countries. And um, there's also a wide range of renewable options and nuclear options that can be used in the US that would allow to mitigate some of those emissions, especially in the uh, stationary emissions like electricity and uh, the heat sector. If you look at China, you can see the energy uh, chunk of their emission is the largest. Um, and most of that comes from the yellow port, which is cool. So for China, reducing the emissions to a large extent would be phasing out coal out of this sector and um, then focusing on the other uses like the transportation and so on. So each sector needs a customized solution and we need to analyze that through a holistic approach. When we mean holistic approach, we need to understand the emission side and the reduction side. And then we need to understand the cost and the benefits of each solution because there are some uh, expensive solutions. Some would be quicker to implement, which would be cheaper solutions. And uh, we need both to come up with ultimate uh, reduction. So we need to understand the available uh, CO2 emissions and the CO2 emission reduction screens, 
identify the minimum cost pathways, and that could feed into the policy of the what's the best policy that could uh, deliver that reduction once we understand what is feasible on the ground and uh, technically. Um, a tool that has been used a lot is the marginal abatement cost curves, and I think you have come across it. It's these curves that look into the amount of CO2 that's being reduced and the required amount of money that's needed. And this would be used to rank different types of emission reduction technologies, whether it was renewable energy or carbon capture utilization and storage or carbon capture by itself or biofixation and all of the other technologies that can reduce CO2. And usually it would rank the, in the technology from the cheapest to the most expensive for per ton of CO2 reduction. However, we've noticed that there's a major thing. There's a lot of secondary emissions that cannot be represented here. And they also contribute a lot to the uh, emission profile because um, they would mean that there's no one emission reduction route that is completely 100% doesn't have any emission. So this, for example, looks into a carbon dioxide source. There is like a technology that captures CO2. And then this would require some power. This power, if supplied from a non-renewable source, would produce emission by itself. And then if you take that carbon dioxide and put it in a sink that can convert it to a value-added product, it would also produce CO2. So we need to account for these uncaptured emissions to rank the actual solution. What is the actual solution? What would have the net CO2 reduction? So we've implemented a method that combined the marginal abatement cost curves with um, the secondary accounting for these secondary emissions. And we applied it to different regions around the world just to understand what are the possible solutions in between using uh, renewable energy, CCUS, any other solution that is possible. And this is commercially available. Uh, this was back in 2020, so it was commercially available back in 2019. So we looked into Norway, we analyzed the emission profile there. Uh, we took 58% of the sec uh, stationary emissions, which are the largest contributor to the uh, CO2, uh, total CO2 emission of the world. Um, then we look into the power sources, and we saw that you actually can have 90%, for the power can be reduced uh, by using uh, renewables. And we looked into the energy price. Looked into Qatar, the emission profile there from the station, the emissions against station emission globally are the largest contributor to CO2. Uh, it was about 80% of the country's emission profile. And the only access for renewable was a solar. Everything existing was based on natural gas. Then we looked into Japan, that is typically an energy importer. And um, uh, the emission is resulting from about 66% from stationary emissions, and the power sector contributes to 70% from that, and 75% is coming from imported fossil fuels. So Japan used or still imports fossil fuels, and 75% of their emission from the stationary emissions are coming from uh, there. And the energy price is the highest uh, comparing to Norway and uh, Qatar. Then we looked into the emission profile. We looked into the different industries that contribute to the emission. So uh, electricity, fuel consumption, there's also some like the chemical production um, and other emissions. Then we looked into the possible ways of reducing that CO2 emission, either converting it to value-added products, 
the use of uh, body fixation or the use of enhanced early recovery, for example. And we looked into the existing power options uh, for different places. So in uh, Japan, they had uh, nuclear power, they had also gas power, they had some coal power. In Qatar, it was 100% gas. In uh, Norway, they had some gas, but also some solar. So we looked also into the potential of implementing solar, wind, and hydropower based on these different countries. And we came up with these emission profiles. From here, we noticed that Qatar can reduce a lot of their CO2 emission just by using um, carbon capture utilization and storage that has a high efficiency. That means that converting carbon dioxide into value other products on net zero um, or negative um, carbon negative technologies like uh, enhanced oil recovery, um, methanol production, and um, natural gas processing, using it in the um, accounting of that emission into a greenhouse uh, production. And you can see here, even though enhanced oil recovery like uh, produces oil, uh, the oil itself that comes out of this can be run, like the CO2 that can be input in there can be run in a loop. So we're, we accounted for that and also the emission that would come out after the production, but we didn't account for the emission that will happen from the oil production, which is, means that this is a major flaw as well because it's not a complete solution, it's a partial solution. But Qatar can be cost neutral and reduce about 17% of their emission at cost neutral. That's something that is really uh, powerful it's because everybody talks about reducing emission and that means that it will be costly. Here you can have no losses and reduce your emission. In Norway, because it had a similar hydrocarbon industry, um, there's also a huge potential of reducing enhanced oil recovery and carbon capture and storage. And it can also reduce up to 8% of, uh, sorry, 20% of their emission and uh, using cost neutral uh, sinks. How about uh, Japan though? Uh, it was more expensive to do that. Japan was the, um, uh, had the largest energy cost and the least access, access to these geological storage that you would typically see. And it benefited heavily from switching coal to hydroelectricity and switching coal to solar, and uh, also replacing some of the coal by natural gas. And that contributed a lot to the emission reduction. So this uh, CO2 planning tool shows the feasibility of CO2 reduction targets. It communicates back that you need to take into account all of the emissions that are generated through the CO2 production, the transportation of that CO2, the replacement of that CO2 with an alternative technology, and the role of incorporating renewables that can replace up to a certain percent the CO2 emission profile, but you would be left with a chunk that would require conversion because you cannot eliminate it using renewables by itself. You need the help of another type. Either you don't, replace, you don't produce it, so eliminate that type of industry, or you would have to convert it into value-added products. And you need to have proper accounting for that because at the end, if we don't have proper accounting, that means we think we're reducing CO2 emission, but we're not at the end of the day. This work was in collaboration with my um, uh, colleague, Dr. Patrick Linke, and uh, my PhD student, Mohamed Lama. There has been also some studies that looked into um, the complete energy transition using renewable energy for the whole world. 
And here there has been like the also commercial technologies that can be bought right now, like the use of nuclear, the use of hydropower, the use of PV, and so on. And this was the uh, result. So you can see here a lot of the um, a lot of the countries around the globe would be using solar-based PV systems. Uh, some countries would have a mix of technologies, and some countries would use hydropower and wind, uh, wind power. Again, this is just replacing the electrical sector, not the chemical sector, and trying to um, um, convert it into becoming renewable as much as possible. Um, what does that mean? It means we need to also figure out energy storage. Because of solar, wind, um, there is some intermittency problems in the production. So there, there is a need to back up those uh, either uh, solar cells or uh, wind turbines with some sort of energy storage. And the cost of energy storage so far has been really high. It's just because we haven't invested in it before. And um, there is a lot of energy storage options. So renewable energy can be stored either in batteries, and that could be like a short-term storage, can be stored in forms of other chemicals, like hydrogen, for example. And that could be a better way of storing. So splitting water into hydrogen to store energy, and then you would have like a green hydrogen can use. And um, there's also a specific type of storage for different types of applications. Um, right now, there has been a lot of research into looking into um, making these storage options cheaper, at the same time more efficient, and implementing uh, resource efficiency, because um, some of the best uh, batteries that we have right now use a lot of minerals, and those minerals also come from mines that would also reduce, uh, that would produce some CO2 emissions. At the same time, it can create secondary problems that we don't want. Um, so uh, we always need this holistic overall approach to understand the uh, impact throughout the life cycle of a solution. Second challenge is we need to decarbonize the heat sector. This is especially important in the heavy industry and the petrochemical production, if we're going to have it, or in the products uh, section. Um, this is a very hard way of, um, like way of uh, producing heat because with, uh, the, um, the industry requires uh, high temperature. And those high temperatures would uh, need uh, a lot of more of research to produce those high temperature. Right now, um, the best solutions that we have is uh, concentrated solar panels and geothermal. If a country is lucky enough to have access to geothermal energy, um, that's good. If not, then they would need to uh, innovate into other type of solutions, like the use of biomass and biogas and so on. There's also another challenge of carbon dioxide hydrogenation to convert it to value other products. We need to come up with uh, less uh, carbon intensive hydrogen that can be used to convert carbon dioxide into value other products. And these products can be um, like uh, anything from uh, like a formic acid that can be used as a precursor for a lot of products or converting carbon dioxide into other useful forms. It can be used so any carbon negative technology that converts carbon dioxide into a value other product um, that is a huge industry uh, needs clean hydrogen and renewable hydrogen as much as possible. So that means that uh, we need to focus on hydrogen production and use. And uh, we have, locally, we have worked with here, this is my master's student, uh, Yasser. He has looked into the production of hydrogen and, um, and transportation of hydrogen and also possible uses. Uh, we discovered that the largest sector that needs 
or would be useful for hydrogen to be implemented in the shipping because shipping produces a lot of emissions. And uh, as of now, there's um, some question marks in research um, because even if we wanted to use hydrogen in its pure form, uh, it's a safety risk. So there's alternative formats of using that, either mixing it with oil or mixing it with, uh, or producing ammonia. And if we have ammonia as well, we need to figure out how to do that safely. So uh, we would need to focus on work in this area, also R&D investment in this area, to figure out how to make hydrogen cleaner so we can convert it and continue using it. So what would be a quick win for uh, the whole world is to work on an efficient energy mix for developing and emerging economies. Uh, we need to work together to help other developing nations to come up with the best energy mix, uh, direct them away from coal, so we need to make that energy mix cheap and feasible and accessible. At the same time, uh, there is also a, a possibility of implementing cross-border electrical grids, and there has been some successful examples on this. So uh, one example is Norway uh, electrical grid that is connected to Europe that can produce um, uh, about 98% mix of renewables into that uh, electricity production transmitted uh, to other places. Um, so. Uh, we need to figure out how to do that more and to have cross-border collaboration in that area. Uh, there's also a, a need for increase in R&D investment in renewable energy still, in carbon capture utilization and storage, in energy storage and alternative chemistries, because to become carbon negative, we need all of these technologies coming together. And the world has done that very nicely in reducing the cost of uh, solar energy in the past two decades. Um, it's now almost 60% cheaper than it was in uh, 2010. And um, if we continue on this path of investing and in R&D into developing uh, cheaper and more efficient technologies, then the world would be more likely to implement those. Last but not least, everybody should be involved. So we need government collaboration with industry. We need uh, local uh, policies and we also need global policies, but we need some sort of a mechanism of accounting um, that uh, make sure that everybody is doing their part. Uh, this is the hard part. <laughs> um, technically, there are solutions. It can be done. It's just coming together and holding each other accountable to reduce our emissions. And last but not least, I just want to show you this image. This is an image of a laser, uh, 1986 and then 2020. And you can see that there is a lot of melting that's happening. So we need to quick <laughs> act together. We need to assess what we have done wrongly in the past. And we know that we need to understand our present, what we can do today so we can have a better future. And um, my student here, uh, Elizabeth Abraham, is working on uh, evaluating those uh, transitions with policy uh, to achieve net zero. Um, so uh, this is the end of my talk. Um, one ambitious target we have here in Qatar is to deliver the first carbon neutral World Cup and uh, hopefully I uh, can do that uh, in 2020. So thank you so much. Thank you so very much. Uh, I first want to say before I get to your presentation, Davia, uh, that I was in Doha in summer of 2019. And yes, it was very hot, but it was a lovely, lovely week. And we got to see the building of the World Cup stadiums and learn about the World Cup. And you all are doing amazing things uh, in your preparation. And to have a net zero uh, World Cup would be fabulous and exciting and thrilling and Anyway, your presentation, thanks for breaking that down for us to be 
uh, a lot uh, more easy to understand. It can get confusing and there's a lot of different factors that are, that are in place. And frankly, it's a really complex uh, situation. So thank you for breaking that down for us. We do have uh, several questions that I would like to get to. So, okay, from uh, a, an attendee, you had a slide that showed nation's cost effectiveness related to alternate energy production. Can you explain what kind of in infrastructure is in place for countries like Norway who seem to be most prepared for this shift and why are they so far ahead? Uh, that's a really good uh, question. So um, Norway is blessed. <laughs> they have access to a lot of renewable energy sources. So hydropower is very accessible in Norway. They have also access to geothermal energy. They have access to wind energy. So that gives them a unique opportunity to produce a lot of their electricity uh, through uh, renewables which are, uh, don't have a lot of those problems that say other types of renewables would have. So they don't need to rely on energy storage, for example, in the form of batteries or in the form of um, say natural gas or converting into hydrogen because it already exists there. So hydropower has already the storage built into it the, and has been used before and uh, for geothermal as, as well. The other thing is they have also very good policies that encouraged um, the adaptation of uh, local policies that reduce emission. So in Norway, they have uh, one of the best mandates for electromobility. So they have a lot of these um, uh, electrical cars and charging stations. And I think they have adopted that and they wanted to be a leader in that area. So they started early and um, the population is aware. So they were aware that um, their continuous emission will just destroy uh, their uh, ecosystem. So they didn't want to have, uh, they wanted to be more uh, eco-friendly. So the population was aware uh, the policies uh, reflected that, and then they have also the geographical advantage. Uh, one thing that Norway has also, they have a lot of the uh, natural gas production that enabled them to have, a, say, some sort of a disconnect. So they produce a lot of natural gas and export it, uh, especially in the North Sea. Uh, however, they don't consume much of natural gas locally. Uh, so but that like income from the natural gas and selling fossil fuels fed into their investment fund that also kind of uh, provided, uh, uh, say, stable wealth for the country. So there's some, some lessons to learn from Norway. It's really interesting. And, and obviously, it, it, Norway is a first world country and is much a much richer country than uh, a lot of others on this globe. And so on that note, uh, you, uh, your conversion and capture methods that you mentioned for fossil fuels and climate change remedies in general, how, and you talked about how different it is for every country, both their climate change initiatives and also the cost for those countries. So truly how realistic it, is it for other countries that may not be as rich as Norway? Uh, how cost prohibitive is it? And then how realistic is it really and, and, and just to add another question to that, how do you really balance the countries uh, that are needing to grow their industries and their economies while needing to reduce emissions at the same time? Yeah, so um, that's the challenge there. So they would need help. 
uh, obviously, left alone, they would go for the cheapest energy source. And you see that. You see it in uh, India and in the development. They're producing a lot of coal. And you see it in China as well, because it's still the, uh, it's accessible. It's within their own boundary. They can control it and will produce really cheap energy for them that would allow them to do all of these development. If, say, renewable energy was as cheap as that and was competitive with it, then obviously they would go for the cheapest option and they would go for the renewable energy option. Um, even making those technologies that carbon conversion and so on, if we make them cheap or be <laughs> available for those countries, then yeah, why, they will use them. They will try to improve the local uh, air quality around them. Um, just today, I had a friend from India just sent me a, like a, a smoke picture from Delhi, and he was like, "Last year it wasn't like this because of COVID. They didn't. They had a reduce in the um, car usage, but right now they have relaxation of the uh, policies, and then the emission just went back. So we know how to make things um, less." polluting. However, we needed to make it accessible. So that's why it's also really important to have, um, say, public-private partnerships so we can develop technologies that would be made accessible for everybody as a solution. So, okay, uh, two things from that. You mentioned coal. And mm -hmm. so Australia, in one of your slides, uh, uses so much coal. And, and you probably saw that with the COP26, uh, there was a report that was being prepared in advance of that. And a lot of countries, including Australia, asked for language to be revised uh, or omitted. Uh, how can Australia specifically uh, address hitting future climate targets uh, for Australia specifically? And then uh, well, let's go with that for now. And oh, okay. And then also you mentioned uh, making things cheaper, making renewable energy. Is that, uh, how soon can we do that? How, mm -hmm. how realistic is that? Yeah. Uh, so for the first question in Australia, I'm not an expert on it, but uh, there has been also some changes in their government. So back in 2012, I think they did adopt uh, one of the earliest carbon tax uh, in the um, in, uh, in the world, I think after Europe. So they had a uh, carbon tax that was there for a couple of years and then they just elected another government that abolished that because they saw that there was an increase in the price of uh, certain uh, goods and um, it wasn't efficient basically. So it was like a premature policy that came into place where people were not ready or the infrastructure was not ready to have that. And also Australia has a lot of LNG that they're trying to convert into hydrogen and then um, exchanging that through trade to Japan and other Asian countries uh, that would buy their hydrogen. So um, it, there has been some positive development there. They have also ex um, like one of the most efficient solar to power production ratios, especially that they have a large region to do that. But it seems like the policy has to be on top of that. So it's not like, it's not a technology solution. I think it was the cheapest option, and um, there needs to be a need. There's a need for like a structure policy and accountability from the world. Um, in terms of uh, solar and the renewable energy that became cheaper, it became cheaper because people were um, uh, investing in it. They deployed it in projects, 
and uh, because of that, that came uh, the price came down. So if we do the same thing for different uh, options like the batteries, for example, and there's a lot of uh, studies that have been done that uh, in the next 10 years, the price of battery would also reduce to 20 or 30 percent. And that's a positive um, trajectory. In the US, there is some projects that are already um, looking into large scale battery storage. Uh, I think there is one Tesla facility that's trying to do that. And so uh, industry itself is going to innovate because they want to be a leader in that area and they want to have that future market because it's going to be an, a need for everybody. So they would develop their technology to become cheap enough. Uh, and I think if we leave it to the market, it will get there. It's just they need some motivation. I hope that uh, we can eventually get motivated to do that. Uh, there's a couple of questions about world uh, summits and climate change uh, conferences and things like that. Uh, one of the, I'm going to ask both of these together because they tie in. Is it feasible to have such a summit, uh, like a climate change conference or summit without the biggest users of coal being there? Can the world do much to prevent coal's damage without their support? And then a very related question from another attendee says, how can any of these plans hope to succeed when China in, is not in reality participating? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, so that's a difficult one. Definitely, you need to have any climate solution. You would need the China, the US, the big three, right? And India, and then you would need the EU. Uh, so any solution without these four, nothing will happen. So definitely we need some leadership uh, or someone to take the example and then uh, make sure that um, others follow. Um, the thing is, um, there here comes the, the issue of global governance. We don't have an independent body that makes climate change uh, violations, like say a crime. Uh, it, does, it doesn't exist. Um, so the accountability mechanism is not there. So I think through like now COP26, so it's been happening for 26 years, uh, we should we know exactly what's missing to implement a solution. So we need those uh, mechanisms that hold other countries accountable, uh, that make uh, uh, emitting certain amount of CO2 above their their need uh, illegal, uh, and so on. Um, it, it will it will be hard, I think, because we don't have that central uh, uh, authority, and you can see it in the UN, right? So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so this question is uh, really about uh, countries that don't follow through with their commitment to emissions and what uh, mitigation strategies or what can the world do when other countries don't live up to their emissions commitments or, or other climate change emissions uh, mm -hmm. commitments? Yeah, so I think there would be a response um, as of now, I haven't seen like a boycott of a certain country just because of their emissions, but maybe there would be a more response of the consumer itself. So maybe the consumer would be more likely to buy a product that would have a low CO2 emission, maybe at a higher cost from another country, 
because he's climate or she is climate conscious. Uh, so the consumers will drive that uh, those decisions, us the people. And um, you can see it, uh, especially with uh, the younger generation. I work a lot with Gen Zs. Uh, they're more uh, active in this area. So I've seen them uh, like looking into more sustainable products. They're adopting more sustainable products. They're using, uh, they're becoming more climate aware. And through the education system, if we have uh, if we can negate the dangers of climate change and the realities and opportunities as well for like growth using uh, or like developing with CO2 reduction, that could also be a motivation. So um, aware society, consumers that would reduce that would put pressure on their government officials or they would um, make their decision through their uh, consumer behavior. You mentioned the youth and in uh, the in Generation Z, which uh, is now uh, will soon be entering the workforce. And there is a question about uh, getting youth more involved. Um, you mentioned the products that they choose and that they're becoming more aware. But what other, uh, and this question is from an attendee, uh, how can we get them even more involved? And so in choosing the products is important, but are there other ways that we can engage them or involve them so that we have a better future with climate? I think um, I'll just take a step back also for the previous question, I didn't finish my answer. I think there was also carbon accounting. I don't know if I mentioned it in the talk, Ooh. but carbon accounting, carbon transparency, that would be really important. So we know who is violating and who is not. Um, and doing that, I think it will just expose a lot of the, um, the current, uh, let's say, people who don't, or countries that don't look to their uh, commitments. Uh, involving the youth, I think, through the education systems, though, um, we should change the way of thinking of, uh, say, starting from uh, like a very young age. So now, for example, like my uh, little cousin, he's six, he was telling me about climate change. Like when I was six, I don't know if I knew about climate change. So it seems like uh, through the education system uh, early on, educate them about the ecology and educate them about the environment and uh, about what's happening, it would be really important. Um, involving agencies in the decision-making um, through like say a COP for example, that would be powerful because they will be living in the reality that we're shaping today. So in the next 30 years, they'll still going to be living here, they'll be working, and uh, they would need to be living with the consequences of what's happening due to our climate policies today. Um, so I think through more of these conferences that could be one possibility, but also through universities and universities uh, working together um, or changing the curriculum to include climate change. Um, and the adaptation and consequences and so on. It seems like a no-brainer. Yeah, I mean, like, I think everybody's doing it already. It's just, we need to wait. <laughs> so this question is about biological diversity. Just to switch gears a little bit. After the 2019 International Agricultural Agriculture Exhibition, Qatar announced an initiative to plant 1 million trees by 2021. How has that initiative impacted biological diversity, improved air quality, or reduced the country's carbon footprint? Yeah, so uh, I think that was two weeks ago when they finished it. <laughs> uh, so we haven't seen the impacts 
of the uh, whole uh, million trees yet, but they, Qatar did invest a, a lot in mangrove um, uh, development. So they uh, around the coastline. I think if I I don't know if I can show you the picture. It doesn't show it. Uh, there is like uh, around uh, like the coastline and the north. So around the Khor and uh, those areas, we have a lot of mangroves that reduce you to, and they are actually um, uh, draw in salt water. And uh, we have a lot of uh, natural preserves there. And that helped a lot with the biodiversity that we have seen a lot of the bird population migrate that used to migrate, say, from Africa and stuff in uh, Qatar coming back. There's also some laws uh, that prohibited hunting of certain species. And there's also some laws with heavy fines on um, like uh, hunting of uh, native turtles and so on. Uh, so there has been, uh, I think that was uh, one of the uh, wins for the ministry here of uh, municipality and environment that uh, was able to do is implement those strict policies. And I think um, they um, they went ahead with like a scheduling and uh, of uh, like the hunting seasons and so on. Um, uh, we hope that we're going to have more biodiversity there. I think one of the uh, forestation uh, projects was using uh, TSE, which is total uh, treated uh, sewage effluent water, which is a byproduct right now and it's not being used. So to plant those trees using water that is uh, coming out of um, residential uh, activity. So that means that we have more of like a circular economy and we will see the benefit of that with the time. Well, really interesting. Uh, someone asked, what is a circular economy? And you just mentioned it again. So can you explain that briefly? Yeah, uh, so circular economy is uh, now a new thing. It's an idea. So there's a lot of, um, uh, it's like a philosophy of uh, reusing uh, the uh, products or the uh, materials that we produce that we don't do something that has an end of life and that you just dispose of it. But you actually think about how can I use it again and reincorporate it into either another product or transform it back to become a raw material again. And it can mean a, a lot of different things at different scales. So it could be um, just as a person, uh, continually using uh, like uh, some, uh, recycling, uh, continue using your things as much as possible. Uh, on an economy, uh, on a larger scale, it means that we need to make sure that we are integrated. So the agriculture sector doesn't work by itself independent of the industry sector. It doesn't work independently from, say, the transportation sector, but all of them feed into each other and taking more of a holistic approach. Like we're looking at the overall picture. What are the possible wins there? What could be put back into the system and reused in a way? And that's uh, one of the aims. As of now, there is no 100% circular economy. But if we all try to be more circular, that means we're going to have less waste production. That means we are more resource efficient and environment uh, better for the environment. We're seeing a lot of that uh, in our products these days. So I want to uh, finish this out with a couple of last questions. And both of these are about carbon neutral, being carbon neutral. So this person says, it's very impressive about having carbon neutral at your World Cup next year. Has the US, Mexico, Canada group reached out to you about uh, effectively doing the same for their World Cup? And uh, this person hopes it's a new trend and I have to say I do too. Yeah, uh, I hope so. I'm not involved with the uh, group here, but uh, for sure there has been established two groups that uh, are responsible for the World Cup here in Qatar. There's one is the Supreme Legacy and Delivery Group. 
So they are preserving the legacy on all of the knowledge and the lessons that they have been acquiring, and they will pass on these knowledge to the next uh, host. Uh, I think there was also a similar initiative where they have uh, did some exchanges uh, through the Russian World Cup back in 2018, and uh, some lessons that were learned from that World Cup taken to the next World Cup, and hopefully would continue this uh, uh, building this knowledge that we can all share. Uh, yeah, I hope that everything becomes more carbon neutral and then carbon negative. Why not? Why not? Right? Why not? We must aspire. Uh, and last question. And uh, you have talked a lot about what government should be focused on to move towards becoming more carbon neutral. But what are some of the practical, practical ways that we as individuals can start to change our lifestyles to make an impact? And are there any uh, commitments that you've made in your life that you care to share about what we all could be doing? That's a, such an interesting um, and good question. Um, I think the governments had to do a lot, especially that they set the regulation of the land and they allow the industry to come in and emit as much as they want. And they are the largest contributors to those uh, emissions. And I showed you before the pie charts, so you can see that. And uh, your contribution would be like 1% from like 17% that's the total population would use. So um, we might not have that big of an impact, but just being uh, aware would be helpful. Um, I think one of the things is to look into your own, uh, into your own life and lifestyle and see where uh, you can be more efficient, either with the use of resources uh, say if you have like you're consuming a lot of uh, like uh, new products and you dispose of them try to recycle as much as you can and why not help in the overall scheme of things but just by doing it you're you're building that uh, habit and you're showing others that you can be done and uh, the other thing is uh, switching your diet uh, that is helpful um, so trying to incorporate more plant-based diet uh, it's um, it, it is shown in like many many studies and can reduce CO2 emission because we have uh, the uh, meat industry and the data industry was a major contributor of uh, CO2 emissions um, I think also uh, doing things like um, uh, trying to uh, be more like installing like more uh, say uh, efficient electrical equipment like um, LED lights, uh, better use of uh, like um, uh, say um, like TVs or monitors that have any receivers on it. Try to have as well to walk as much as you can and use public transportation than driving everywhere. Uh, at the same time, uh, you can also like set the AC to like a certain temperature uh, if you have it. Here in Qatar, we do have it everywhere. So uh, we're trying to keep it at the optimal temperature of 23 degrees uh, Celsius again. Um, personally, I try to uh, do that as much as possible. And um, um, by advocating and making sure that my students here at Texas A&M are doing the same. And when they end up working in any place, say it was an oil gas company or a pharmaceutical company or anywhere, uh, they would practice that. And hopefully at the end, it would trickle down uh, once they go in the, if they are conscious, their actions gonna be conscious of that. We can all make an impact and participate, uh, although it may be a bit of a smaller impact, but that's really good to hear. And I think that's a very positive note to close us out for today. Truly, Davia, thank you very much for your time and for breaking that down, uh, a complex subject, into ways that we all can understand. So thank you for your time. And I just want to remind everyone to 
check out our website at dfwworld.org to view our event lineup. I hope that you uh, come to our programs in person coming up soon, starting on Tuesday night is the next one. And to also become a member. If you are not a member of us yet, please do join us. I'd love to meet you in person. I'd love to have your engagement. And once again, thanks so much. Have a great uh, evening, Davia, and have a great afternoon, everyone on the webinar. Thank you so much. Thank you, Liz. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening.